Hello and welcome to Act to Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. My name is Tasia, And I'm Corinne. And today we are talking about Rule of Wolves by Lee Bardugo. But before we get into the book, as usual, Corinne, what are you obsessing over this week? So I have several things. I've read a ton like over the first week of our two-week break between episodes and then have not read at all in the last week. So spreading things out here, but I really liked a lot of what I read. And I think that's why I've taken like an accidental reading pause now because everything was a five-star read like over and over and over. Yeah. And eventually you're just afraid you're not going to get that anymore. So the first thing I really loved is actually Duology by Adrian Young. It's Fable and book two is Namesake. They are just a really good short duology about this girl and this fantasy world who grew up on a ship and her mom dies in a shipwreck when she's 14 and her dad leaves her on an island to fend for herself and four years pass by and the whole time she's just been trying to survive and eventually leaves the island via this ship called the Marigold and she becomes very tight with the crew on the Marigold which is uh, captained by very dreamy ship boy named West and it's a really just a compelling look at family and parentage and how that affects you and it's fantasy and that the world is not our own world but there's not really much in the way of magic and it's just like beautifully written and descriptive and I just really really enjoyed it and also they have the most beautiful covers I've ever seen on books ever those covers are beautiful they're so gorgeous I got both books in the library immediately ordered them before I returned them because I was like I need them with me the found family aspect of it which we've talked a lot about on the show and why we love other series is really strong in it so i just needed to like hold my little marigold crew babies with me at all times uh by having the physical copy of that book here that was really good i also read the intimacy experiment by rosie dannon we talked or i talked previously and i think you did too um you read it after me her first book the roommate came out last year and then this is this next book in the series by the friend of the guy from the first series. Her name's Naomi. She's a former uh, adult film performer and in the first book goes into business with the main couple there. And this book is about her falling in love with and her relationship with a rabbi. I was unsure how this was going to work. It seemed like <laughs> quite the uh, leap to make that work. And it worked so well. And was just a beautiful, tender, mature love story. And by mature, I don't mean like sexually like explicit or mature, which it was, but also they're both adults. And so their relationship was very mature and the conflicts were very mature. It also had just a beautiful look at Judaism. I I loved it. I was shocked how much I loved it. Um, it's just a really fun romance that looked a ton of art and was really good. And the last thing I read, fitting again for this podcast, which maybe I'll make us read here someday, is Fat Chance Charlie Vega. And it is a book about a girl who's half Puerto Rican and she is plus size. Her mom is not. Her dad had passed away and her she and her mom have this very tumultuous relationship. And it's just about her finding, not finding her own self-worth as a larger person. She knows that she has self-worth, but her mom and her have a very tough relationship in relationship to her body it has one of the swooniest YA romances I've ever read. Like this guy was a top book boyfriend and it was a great 
story of like this girl was not finding her worth in a guy, but he was just a great supplement to her journey. It was just really fun, really naturally written, exactly what appeals to us on this podcast in terms of YA, the, a, a book that adults could really enjoy and take away a lot from, but also focusing on kids in high school. And it was just really good. I liked it a lot. How about you? I had kind of a similar couple of weeks which was just reading a ton and then kind of burning myself out a little bit. But what I liked a lot, which were several things, um, and this one I'm blaming on you and friend of the pod, Jesse, the From Blood and Ash series by Jennifer yes. L. Armentrout. Yes. It's From Blood and Ash and uh, Crown of Gilded Bone. Or no, sorry, that's the third one that's coming out this week. But uh, of Flesh and Fire, uh, which Kingdom is of Flesh and Fire, yeah, stupidest name in the world. <laughs> There's a lot of stupidest names in the world in that whole series, but there are. But it's so good. I was not expecting at all to like it as much as I did. Um, it's definitely one of those like pure candy, pure popcorn, like not sustaining kind of stories. But it totally sucked me in. Like, like very few things have recently, and um, yeah, I'm I'm like obsessed. And I my life is ruined. <laughs> I feel very, I want to say like vindicated because it's not like you were ever like, nah, I don't think I'll like, I'm not going to read it. But I did mention it like a long time ago. And it, when people read it and then really like it, I'm like, yes, yes, join <laughs> me. Because it is like trash in a lot of ways. Yeah. But like it's real tasty trash. And I yeah, love I mean, it. And who doesn't need that sometimes? You know, like not everything we read has to be like literary or has to be like some big thing. It's totally fine just to kind of get lost in some trashy fun thing. And I'm so excited for the third book, which is coming out on 420, yes. um, which this episode will be out already by then. So we will have read it by I'm the sure time you will. listen to this. We're going to have no chill when it comes to. No, it's it. so upsetting. Uh, I did not need to get this <laughs> invested in another series, but it is what mm. it is. It's super fun. I love it. I love the main character. I it's it's all good. Read it. Talk to us about it. (laughs) And then I also read Stardust by Neil Gaiman for the first time, and Mm -hmm. I found it so charming, so whimsical and delightful and funny in that like very specific Neil Gaiman way. And then I watched the movie for the first time, which I liked less. But you know that happens when you watch the movie immediately after finishing the book. Right. It's nearly always the case. Uh, I confess this to you off pod, but I've never read a game and it's my shame in this world. (laughs) So maybe that'll be the one I start with someday when I begin. Stardust would be a good one to start with because it's, it's very short. It's, and and it's got everything inside of it that like you can come to expect from any game in. Right. Yeah. So, well, time for the main event. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So, we're going to preface this by saying this is going to be long and we already know it's going to be two parts. If you've listened to any of our episodes over the last couple weeks since this book came out, or I guess there's only been one episode since then, we really fell hard into this book. We absolutely loved it. And there's just so much here to talk about. And one of the things that we decided would be fun to do as we were processing this book and everything that happened in it off air was to bring back some friends who you may remember from our previous episodes on the Grishaverse trilogy and on the the Six of Crows duology uh, to talk about things that carried over from each of those books because we got way more of that than I really even anticipated. We recorded those 
what we thought were going to be pretty short segments to just kind of insert <laughs> on a couple of topics. And each of them on their own were quite long. Which so, is like our bad because we should have known better. <laughs> we should have known better. So we're going to try to not go over again everything that we talked about. Those You'll see they'll pop up in a kind of natural way here as we go through. But because of that, we know. We just know already that this is going to be two parts. So uh, we're going to drop one part one day and then part two the next day. So we all have this out there in the world. But um, if you are here at this point in one of our final episodes on our Grishaverse journey, we anticipate that you aren't going to care <laughs> very long because this is really, as Lee has said, the culmination in her mind of the Grishaverse in a lot of ways. And we'll talk about our thoughts on where it could be going next and our, and our feelings about that. But uh, yeah, just sit down, buckle in. We're going to start now with a quick book summary in case for some unknown reason to me, you are listening to this episode without having read this doorstopper of a book. I say quick because it is very scant on details and that's fine. There's a lot of plot that happens in this book. We're as always more interested in the character journeys here. So I really tried to just hit the highlights. Zoya and Nikolai continue to try to find a solution to the blight that is spreading across Ravka while also trying to hold off the fear dens with whom war is imminent. Nina is undercover with Hannah in, in Jarl Broom's household, passing intelligence she gathers back to Ravka while trying to spread the message that the Grisha are blessed by Jell and their actions are actually the work of saints. While Nina and Hannah get closer to Fyrda's Prince Rasmussen, Nikolai and Zoya agree to a deal with the Darkling, who has returned and is still contained within Yuri's body. They'll agree to let him see Alina if he tells them how to get another source of the thornwood needed to perform the ritual that they attempted in King of Scars in order to heal the rupture caused by the fold. When Zoya takes the Darkling to see Alina and Mal, the Darkling manages to use them both to regain his power and then escapes. Though Nikolai strong arms the shoe into siding with Ravka against the Fyrdens, the Fyrdens attack Osalta and David dies. While the Darkling tries to find followers of the Starless Ones and plans his return to dominance, Zoya and Nikolai continue to plan for the war with Fyrda and decide to go to Ketterdam and seek Kaz Brecker's help to get the titanium they need to fashion their new missiles. The Fyrdens continue to advance and a final battle ensues. The shoe fail to come to Ravka's aid, though Mayu, who masqueraded as Princess Eru and King of Scars, leads the shoe's metallic winged soldiers into battle. Even though Nikolai decides to let his demon out to join the fray, Ravka is poised to fall until Zoya finally unleashes the dragon within her, leading the Fyrdens to immediately retreat. While Nina and Hannah originally thought Prince Rasmussen might be open to a more progressive Ravka, it becomes clear that he is a true terror, and when he attempts to harm Hannah, she kills him, tailoring herself to look like him. Hannah and Nina decide to remain undercover and plan to eventually rule Fyrda together. The leaders of Ravka gather to discuss the country's future after the war, and Nikolai ultimately advocates for Zoya to be queen, which the council agrees to. Before her coronation, Zoya, Jenya, and Nikolai accompany the Darkling to a monastery where the last Thornwood is. The monk there informs them that the fold is a tear in the fabric of the universe, and someone must hold it closed. The Darkling agrees to do so, but only if Zoya agrees to pass him off as a saint. She and Jenya ultimately agree, not for his own redemption, but so that all their suffering will have meant something. 
Zoya is crowned as queen of Ravka, and she and Nikolai are finally together. Zoya ponders a riddle set to her by the monk at the Thornwood and wonders whether the heart of Sankt Felix, a long-lost relic, could be used to hold the tear caused by the fold closed instead of the darkling. They contemplate how to find it, and the book ends with this line. Get a message to the Crow Club, she said. El Kaz Brecker, the queen of Ravka, has a job for him. And that's the rules. The I had best. to like physically restrain myself from like cheering for a bunch of shit you were talking about. Oh my god! I like, know this- Nikolai and Zoya together. But, uh, too much happened. Too much. So I uh, don't want to speak for you, Tasia, but I have felt like I am just like internally on fire, like thinking about so many things I loved about this book. Like for the last three weeks since it came out, I love 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 nearly everything that happens in this book if you listen to our king of scars episode you know that tasia and i are both huge into nikolai zoya and them together and this book fed us so well uh when it comes to to them and it's just too much for me to think about it's been a very intense few weeks over here <laughs> so intense uh and then uh, all the crow stuff i mean it's it's too much. It was all too much. This book just really, I think, exceeded all of my expectations of what I thought possibly could be coming. Yeah, it literally gave me everything I wanted. Like with mm-hmm. with like a couple very, very small exceptions. I like you said, love everything that happened. I just yeah. got so much more than I ever expected to get. Right. And one of the things that I think is just really incredible about it is how earned everything felt. And when we discussed King of Scars, I don't know that we really discussed it in that level of detail, but so much of that book felt disjointed and felt that it didn't connect. I don't want to say that I was like, why did you write this, Lee? But it kind of felt like that in some ways, because it was like, what is the what are what is the overarching point we're coming to here, especially when it came to things like the resurrection of the darkling? And like really yeah. we're relitigating this issue. But she just knocked it out of the park. Yeah. I mean to to have that chance to revisit like your own story and kind of retroactively make it better mm-hmm. is is just wild. She did yeah. such such an incredible job. Yeah. But I think and we'll talk again about some of these more little instances of how really this book improved my understanding of the trilogy and um that'll be in one of our special segments coming here today but also just amplified my love for the crows duology which i didn't think i could love more uh, but ultimately this book is or this this duology is referred to as the nikolai duology so i think that that's the logical place to start with our favorite golden hair not pirate but privateer king but not king anymore uh nikolai lansoff also not lansoff noted zoya nazielenski simp <laughs> we we have that in common. Yes. Nikolai. So, you know, in the last book, you know, a lot of that book focused on the fact that Nikolai still had this demon within him, this part of the Darkling that kind of came back when it turns out we find out in that book, the Darkling himself kind of was coming back. And a lot of that book, all of that book was spent trying to figure out how to excise that demon from within Nikolai. 
And I think for me, what is the best part of this book is him coming to terms with the demon, making peace with the demon, and actually like embracing the demon. It was really well done. Yeah. Again, even at the beginning of this book, they are trying to figure out a way to do this ritual with the thornwood to get rid of the demon and also close this like gaping wound caused by the fold. And that's still the goal. But then to see the progression of how, despite that, there's they, they aren't getting that solution fast enough and Nikolai has to deal with the demon, but how he starts using it and letting it free. I just really liked how all of that was done. I think it it draws really great parallels between him and Zoya too, because so much about both of their arcs in this book is about kind of letting out that inner, like your inner feelings, your inner, in Nikolai's case, demons, and accepting those things about yourself. And I really love that they kind of had very similar journeys in that way. Yeah. This is a quote from the, towards the beginning of the book when they're talking about the possibilities of things that they could do. And this is what Nikolai thinks to himself at that time. And as for what's possible, well, the word had lost its meaning. He had met saints, witnessed their destruction, nearly died himself and become host to a demon. He'd seen a man long dead resurrected and he was fairly sure the spirit of an ancient dragon was lurking inside the woman next to him. If possible was a river, it has long since left its banks and become a flood. And so, what what's really I think great too, just generally about this book going back at, in preparing for today's pod was seeing how she really seeds a lot of stuff in a really like subtle but rewarding way. I mean, she's kind of laying out her thesis statement for the book there, and at the end, they both have embraced the demon and the the dragon within them, and it's such a great parallel journey for them. I love it. What I think too is really compelling about the demon stuff for Nikolai is how it relates to the Darkling in this book. You know, when we had our trilogy episode and we had Aubrey on, she made the connection or drew a comparison between Nikolai and the Darkling, which I had never really thought about before. And this book, like she was prescient and really knew what Lee was going for because that's Totally what this book does, not in so much explicit terms, but in just a really artful, artful way here. It's like, it's kind of staggering to me, honestly, when I think about it. At the end, when Zoe asks, like, how could you just give up your throne? And he very willingly does that. He's just like, nope, I'm not the the best person (laughs) for this. But she asks him, how can you just give up the throne? fought so hard for because I was never fighting for the throne. Not, not really. The battle was always for this disaster of a country. The darkling believed that he was the key to Ravka's salvation. Maybe I fell into that trap too, but it isn't too late to get this right. And that's like why we love him. Like, yeah, he's, he's so he good. sees, he sees those, those parallels between, between him and the darkling. And he takes those steps like very purposefully to avoid that fate that the darkling had to avoid being you know becoming that person so yeah and and I love that that progression too because throughout the book you kind of get little hints of him thinking about you know oh well what would I be doing if I didn't have to be the king if I didn't feel like I had to save this country myself mm-hmm. and 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 I'm so happy for him that he gets to he gets to like live a life now cuz he's I mean he's had the weight of the world on his shoulders forever 
that part of it is so rewarding too, because you do get moments where he just, he contemplates so much what his life would be like if he didn't have this burden upon him. And I, I really like that for, for him that he's still going to be able to serve Ravka, but in a way that isn't so restrictive to him and how, you know, one of the big impediments between him and Zoya was always the fact that like, he's going to be king and he needs to marry for a political alliance. Well, when you have the queen, Aravka and Zoya be this all powerful dragon badass. Like no one is going to threaten them <laughs> anymore in the same way. I mean, the Fjordans immediately retreat when she comes at the end. So that really frees both of them to do the best that they can for Ravka and be together without having the same political ramifications. So I really love that aspect of things. But, you know, I really just like too to come back to the the darkling, the distinction between how the darkling is corrupted by his power which we'll talk about later in this episode and how that all shakes out in this book but how instead for Nikolai it's embracing that part of him and kind of separating it out and using it in just the most beneficial way to Ravka I like love this quote at least He'd fought to the end as their king, but maybe Ravka didn't need a king or even an adventurer. Maybe his country needed a monster. And again, that's him. He lets his demon out at the end uh, during the battle, but it's also Zoya. Mm -hmm. Again, going back to that quote at the beginning, it's just, it's all so rich. And he lets that demon out. And one of the great things in this book, and again, we'll, we'll talk at length about the crow stuff we get in this book, but what Kaz says to him at the end of those chapters is, you know, from one bastard to another, sometimes it's best to let the demon have its day. And he runs with that at the end. <laughs> I you know he went so from the first book in this duology, like chaining himself up every night, making sure that nobody except for like the inner circle, the the triumvirate knew about the demon, uh, keeping it so under wraps. And in this book, he's just like, fuck it. And he's letting the demon out to save his people and to to fight his battles. And it's really great to see him kind of mm-hmm cut some of those like those restraints that he's had to keep himself down yeah and you know that idea of self-sacrifice and why he does that at the end is so rich to think about too and again to draw that parallel to the darkling in this story you know he gets ready to let the demon out we have a moment from the darklings pov where he's like why is he doing that like they're never going to let him be king if he lets the the demon out and yuri who's still inside him thinks like it's sacrifice and he's like he's in awe of this so we get pov chapters in this book from mayu who i mentioned at the top who is very hesitant to kind of go along with nikolai in this book for a lot of reasons stemming from everything that happened in King of Scars. But at the end, she has this moment where she looks at him and thinks he had never looked less like the boy who had courted her. He had never looked more like a king. So I just, I get like emotional thinking about how like Nikolai is not king, but he does the ultimately kingly thing here for his country. He's got a great battle speech at the end where he's trying to like rally everyone. It's just, it's so good. That battle was so emotional. That was like oh my god (laughs) just every little moment of it really worked for me but this did really I'm gonna like cry reading it because you know we get so many struggles from Nikolai throughout like all of the books 
really, but particularly through King of Scars, there's always been this question of his parentage. And I want to talk about his dad here in a couple of minutes too, who we get some of in this book, but this is what he says to rally the troops and particularly these like winged soldiers who come at the end. This is not your country. I have no right to command you. So I ask you fight for me, fight for every Grisha, for every soldier, for every child who wishes to see his mother again, for every father who wishes to rest his head at night without fear of what may come tomorrow, for every artist and carpenter and stoneworker and farmer who are meant to do more with their lives than carry a gun in their hands. Fight for all of us. Like he's just the best boy. He is. <laughs> so... Is Nikolai the best boy we've ever talked about on this he, show? He is the absolute best boy. I mean, like we, we can't even really bottle it down into one concise statement to talk about all of the things that lo- make us love him because it's so much about the wit and the charm we talked about when we were getting ready to do our notes for this episode. Like I can't just copy and paste every single little like witty zinger he makes because mm-hmm. that's like 50% of the book on its own. But then on top of it, we get this substance, which is just so incredible and so, so rewarding to read. And I, and you know, then this is what Zoya says to him at the end after he's like, she needs to be the queen. She says to him and is trying to like suss out what this extent of their relationship is going to be at this point. And she goes, we would go on, you and I. If I couldn't be queen, you would find a way to win this battle and save this country. You would make a sheltering place for my people. You would march and bleed and crack terrible jokes until you had done all you said you would do. I suppose that's why I love you. <laughs> it's like, is Zoe saying that or am I saying that? <laughs> I know. She just completely just highlighted it all right there. Yeah. And he's just such a good boy. He's so good. And actually that moment, even though it's Zoya saying it, but it's like totally true. It's such a, that's Nikolai's ethos. Like that is who he is. But that statement of who he is gave me very big Kaz energy in terms of like, no matter how broken we were, we'd fight our way out together. Knives drawn, pistols blazing, because that's what we do. We never stop fighting. And that there's so many great Kaz and Nikolai parallels even before we got to this book, they're very similar. Nikolai is like the bright, sunshiny version of Kaz in a lot of ways. This scheming, this planning. Um, we'll talk about in our segment on the crows later some more parallels to them. But we we get such great schemes from Nikolai in this book. But they both do have this willingness to fight for what's important to them. And yeah, and like for Nikolai on a larger scale, it's Ravka and you know Kaz is we will talk about his his conscience later in this episode too but you know he they have so many parallels and so i just felt like channeling has brecker in that moment a little bit uh same energy no wonder we love them both yeah the way he played the uh the way he played the kirch with the the, the submarines or whatever um yeah. real big cas energy big big cas energy and then the whole wedding are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. Which was our biggest nervous thing going into the book. I mean, uh, King of Scars ends on a cliffhanger like, with the Darkling. But also, Nicola's like, okay, we're going to have a wedding. And everyone assumes, okay, like he's going to marry the actual princess. And he tricked us. Lee tricked us. Everyone tricked us. I can also picture Kaz at some point in college writing very bad bleak poetry 
Like oh my Nicholas, God. as he said, uh, imagine if you're able, how long I've spent in this world. Do you never wonder what waits in the next? Nikolai supposed he had. He had written some very bleak poetry about death and the unknown while he was at university in Ketterdam. Some of it rhymed in couplets, all of it remarkably bad. Yeah. I just love the just like the the visual of like an angsty totally fits so doesn't it <laughs> angsty young Nikolai writing this like death poetry um I'm gonna say this now because my swoon section notes are already out of control so let's try to eliminate some things here but then this that so that's the darkling asking him about that and then he sa- says thinks this thing about the poetry which is so funny but then he says this or thinks this to himself why think of the next world when she was in this one? Oh my god it was just so romantic. I could die. I'm, so this many is actually my this... ghost talking to you guys. <laughs> so know. many times during this book, he either thinks it or set, like outright says it about how like he doesn't want to live in this world without like he can't imagine his life without Zoya. And it's Mm-mm. it like physically hurts me. I, I can't. I can't handle that. It's like too much for me. Okay. Also, though, as I said, I want to talk about about this stuff with his his real dad his biological father in this book because in going back through the book one of the most touching scenes i think is the scene where his dad comes to see him so magnus he's being held captive by the fjordans he is fjordan we know this from the previous book he was a shipping magnet and he's being held basically captive as as leverage essentially to use in the war as proof of Mikolai's lack of a claim to the throne. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and we get some great subterfuge with Nina, like finds him and is trying to get him out and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately he does escape and he gets to Os Alta because he wants to warn Nikolai of this impending attack and he doesn't get there in time, but he does get there in time to uh, ring the warning bells and he, he saves a lot of people, I think, that way. And I as wrote, you know, he says, I try to get here sooner to warn you of the bombing. And it's like, we see where Nikolai gets it from, right? Like I was going to say, he was giving such, like, I mean, just him him escaping. Like, Nina goes to find him to help him out, but he's gotten himself out. He's made it all the way, like, in disguise to Azalta and put himself at such risk. And you just see so much of Nikolai in him or... Uh, him and Nikolai, I guess, would be the more appropriate. Yeah. But uh, and, and it's like it's great to see that origin of Nikolai and where he comes from. And you know, one of the things too we're going to talk about in our segment on the Darkling here in a little bit is the idea of the first Lanslav king and how the first one that um, the Darkling served was actually a good king and how we kind of think it actually sounds like Nikolai in a lot of ways. Uh, but then through time, everything got so warped and so perverse. And we know from the trilogy that Nikolai's adopted father, I guess for lack of a better term, is awful. His brother, who's mm-hmm. actually a proper Lanthop, was awful. And so to see that, again, it doesn't matter the name. It's the person um, is most important. You know, Nikolai is like that ancestor who's not really his ancestor by the end. And it, it's so good. And also, they both have the same wit, which is really good. Magnus says at one point, I'm not nearly so self-sacrificing. No, I will go to no visa. I have money. I have time. I'll live a new life there. Maybe I'll have myself tailored and really start fresh. A shame, said Nikolai. We're extremely handsome. grinned. <laughs> Think of all the poor souls who will never look on this face. <laughs> I really hope that 
in the future, Nikolai gets to spend time with his dad and get to like really know him. Yeah. That's a lovely rumination Nikolai has in this scene too, which am I remembering correctly? Sometimes I'm like reading so fast. I'm so excited. I skip the details, but they're being, they're separated by a fence at this, like a gate. Right? I think so. Yeah. So like they yeah. can't even like really embrace each other. And he's ruminating on like things that Zoya had told him about like her mother and her mother was awful. And like how you think about how your life might be different if she had a different mother and he thinks about like how his life uh, might be different. It's so good. But then he thinks about this too, which I love this sentiment. He had to wonder at the mad ambition that had brought him here, that had driven him to pursue the crown when he might have had a hundred other lives. He might've left the future of Ravka to his brother. He might've gotten to be someone's son. He could have loved whom he wanted to, married whom he wished to, assuming the vexing creature said yes. <laughs> All those lives were gone, vanished at each crossroads with each choice he'd made. He'd given them up for Ravka. Would it be worth it in the end? And so like... To have that moment of reflection brought upon by his father coming just to see him one time before he disappears. It's just a lovely I'm cry again. Because I just like I really love Nikolai's selflessness is so so good. He's such a good boy. Okay, you need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I don't have anything to add. It's hard. This is really hard because this book just like brought out a lot of feelings in a not in a mm-hmm. coherent way, which is why I just keep like copying quotes in. And this is another one then, again, this full kind of full circle moment with his father here. And um, he is thinking he of his father in this last battle where it looks like, okay, we're not going to be saved before Zoya comes in. And this is what it says. He thought of Magnus Opture dressed as a beggar, but still standing proud who had journeyed all the way to the capital to try to save his son in a city full of innocent people. He was an inventor, a builder like Nikolai. Like if that just isn't Nikolai, like in a nutshell, he would do those Mm -hmm. things. And so I just, I really loved everything with his father. It was so so lovely. It was such a great way to show who Nikolai is and how even if he's not the king of Ravka, he can make such a difference because he's just that person and he's the goodest boy. I mean, I can't, I don't know how else to like say it. I just, I love that. I hope he does get to see his dad. His dad was like, send a message through this bar and no visa and they'll find me eventually. And He's got this whole like network already worked out. Like that guy's wild. He's wily. He's crafty. He is. He's a fox like Nikolai. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Um, no, no one's sitting here blaming Nikolai's mother for. uh, (laughs) No, I mean, he's great. Well, obviously he's handsome. He looks just like Nikolai and uh, it's great. No. And then I love to Magnus says, oh, you have a half sister, by the way. And Nikolai says something like, oh, I think I might like to have a little sister, but I'm really bad at sharing, which is just lovely. But um. Then she's at the coronation at the end, which is just a little moment of like maybe Nikolai's establishing that relationship. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe like Magnus Opener doesn't need to be, I mean, he doesn't need to be anymore, right? Like Nikolai is out and said, like, yeah, I'm a bastard. It's fine. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, that that information's way out there. So he doesn't, there's no reason for him to be in hiding. Yeah. No reason for him to hide from Fjorda either, since Nina's in charge over there now. Yeah. Nina and Hannah. Yeah. So I really like everything that happens with Nikolai in this book. It's so good. You know, one of the things we'll talk about the end two here in a couple of minutes in terms of like the Darkling 
and like how he's still there. And therefore Nikolai still has this demon inside him. And the book kind of sets up the possibility that maybe sometimes the darkling will die in the future. If this like plan they hatch maybe comes to fruition, but like, I kind of don't want that for Nikolai because I love this idea of I'm the monster. The monster is me. He's embraced that and channeled it in such a good way. And Lee writes such compelling characters who have darkness within them and they channel that in such good ways. And I kind of like that for him. I hope he keeps it. Yeah, I do too. Okay. Oh, buckle up here for <laughs> Zoya Nazulanski uh, appreciation hour. I say hour because it literally could be an hour. <laughs> I don't even like really know where to start. I mean, we were pretty effusive in our praise of Zoya in the first book of this duology, how important it is to us to see a character like Zoya, who is such a badass, is so unapologetic for who she is, is not soft, is not any of the characteristics that you see in female protagonists in many books and how much that meant to us here diving further into who, why she is the way she is and how guarded she has made herself through everything. It was just like a lot for me to handle. I find it really, really lovely too that it kind of shows like you can look to Zoya and see how people that are like that, that are maybe abrasive and aggressive and standoffish and aloof. That does not mean at all that they feel any less. Zoya clearly feels so much and she doesn't let herself express it, but that doesn't diminish at all that she has feelings and that she is still a worthy, caring person. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll talk with her about feelings first, I guess, because there's kind of, I think, a couple things going on here, right? So we talked in the first book, and this is a big thing in the first book, too. Her turn from the darkling is motivated by his murder of her aunt, essentially, and the grief she feels from that. And we get so much more here about grief and how that is the 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 flip side of love, in a lot of ways. So her relationship through grief and love in this book is so fascinating to um, move through. It's like that quote from WandaVision is very uh, prescient here in this book, the what is grief, if not love persevering. It's that, I mean, that's like what this, her journey is in this book in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's almost like she's doubled down. Like she, we thought kind of she had made progress through that, through, through King of Scars. She deals with a lot of that through Juris and he helps her kind of struggle with a lot of the things about her past. And it seems like she's come out stronger and she definitely is stronger in a lot of ways, but then, you know, the loss of Juris has a big effect on her. And Nikolai thinks at one point since she'd lost Juris since their battle on the fold, Zoya had changed. It was like he was viewing her from a distance. Like she'd taken a a step away from everyone and everything. And yet she was sharp as always, armor firmly in place, a woman who moved through the world with precision and grace and little time for mercy. So she's like battening down the hatches at that point. Mm-hmm. She's continuing to just try to keep herself isolated from her own feelings because she she can't handle them. Did she want to forget what a gift that would be to never feel as humans did to never grieve again, then it wouldn't be so hard to leave this room, to shut the door on what might've been to say goodbye. So she's processing so much of that through this book. And it's so hard to read and so beautiful and totally like relatable. Right. I mean, 
who who doesn't feel that way if they've reckoned with unimaginable loss and hardship in their life? They try to prevent it's a natural self-preservation yeah. instinct. Oh, this part too just really fucked me up because you know, her relationship with her mom, we get even more of in this book as if she like selling her off to the highest bidder as a child was not awful enough. We get this quote from her mom. This is what love does, but she, it comes up in a very insidious way that, um, you know, her mom was Robkin and married Zoya's dad, who is Suli. And that basically ostracizes them from society in a lot of ways and they have a very rough Zoe has a very rough upbringing and so every time like something is bad and they have no money for food this is what uh, love does and her mom is like her mantra growing up and it's yeah. just uh, what what a thing to indoctrinate your child with it, and to almost make them feel guilty for even existing because she is like the representation of their love right and it's because of her it's because of that love that their lives are shit God, what a terrible way to bring up a child. It's so terrible. And that's why Zoya thinks things like this. This is what love does. Love was the destroyer. It made mourners, widows, left misery in its wake. Grief and love were one and the same. Grief was the shadow. Love left when it was gone. And so for Zoya, she has such a warped way of looking at, of love. And and it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, one of the things I really like, though, about this journey that Zoya goes through with respect to love is that it's not just Nikolai who like allows her to push through that, but like it, that is a huge part of it. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. so many of these moments where she's contemplating it is when she's contemplating it as it relates to potential future with Nikolai. I mean, and they both have the convenient excuse. They use it all the time of like, well, you're the, you're King and you have to marry for political advantage, but she, but yeah, that's a, that's a very convenient a blockade they're putting up themselves. It is Nikolai, but it, it's definitely also, and she thinks about this a lot during the book too, you know, Jenya and David and Alina and, and how much she re- she truly loves all of them. And, and she thinks about how she had resisted that in the beginning as well, like trying to hold herself above them or mm-hmm. separate from them. And <laughs> that didn't work either. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that stuff is really interesting too. You know, people don't like Zoya in the original trilogy because she is Zoya <laughs> and is very abrasive and is very um, she's not she does not have the friendship that she with Alina in the way that even Jenya does. And some people, I don't know how much that works for. We on this podcast love Zoya from the beginning essentially and day one day one but i love a hot mean girl exactly <laughs> right yeah like she yeah that's exactly what she is which there's some reasons too and i love getting more of that here we learn so much more about her attitude from the original trilogy the idea that she didn't want to work with jenny and david she thought she was better than them but Jenya the scenes with her and Jenny in this book are really good because Jenny knows and can see exactly what Zoya is going through. They both suffered extensive trauma at the hands of the Darkling and it manifests in a little bit of a different way. And then for different reasons, you know, Zoya says at one point to Jenny, I look back and I hate knowing how easy I was to manipulate. This is talking about when she was younger with the Darkling mm-hmm. and, uh, Jenny goes hungry for love and full of pride. Zoya squirmed. Was I that obvious? 
And that's exactly what the Darkling did to them. Alina says this to her then too. He sees something in you that frightens him. He always has. Why do you think he worked so hard to make us doubt ourselves? He was afraid of what we might become. And then her internal monologue is, we are the dragon. We do not lie down to die. Some tiny fraction of the fear in her receded. So like to look back and get these snippets and moments of how, yes, she had this horrible upbringing and all she wanted was this place to belong but instead she falls victim to yet another abuser in a different sort Mm -hmm. of way and all she wants is love and what does it get her it gets her more grief so her whole life has been premised on exactly what her mother said you know this is what love gets you and god i like i want to like burn down everyone who's ever hurt her like (laughs) To get that much more insight into her, which like I think was kind of clear in a lot of ways, but again, the 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 limitation of the one person POV in the trilogy obviously limits that in a lot of ways. But to get more of it here is so good. I love everything that she thinks about Jenny and David and how, you know, she again she resented that she had to work with them and instead she'd come to value their opinions and rely on their judgment again and again. She found herself grateful that she wasn't alone in this. It's it's all so good. And they're really in a lot of ways, the catalyst for her to start accepting more of this love in her life. I mean, she, she thinks at this point to Jenny, like loops her arm through her she wasn't good at this kind of closeness but some childish part of her craved it remembered how easy it had felt to laugh with her aunt um she pretended to resent it but she felt like she belonged with them so like, that's just like priming her for the big stuff that we get here which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite fantasy tropes it never ceases to not like make me really upset that like the whole love is the way thing that scene at the end where she finally is just like, I can't keep this at bay anymore. She, she opens the door and it's and it's for her love of Nina mm-hmm. and her desire to save her. And I think I just stopped. Like I read that scene and I just kind of like stopped and I sat with it for a minute. And then I went back and I reread it again a couple more times because it was so good. It was so beautiful. Just her opening her heart and, and walking through that door. It freed the dragon in her and like it makes her so much more powerful it's so incredible it comes on the heels i think this is jenny again saying you push us away keep us at arm's distance so that you won't mourn us but you'll mourn us anyway that's the way love works she goes to get nina thinking she's her subordinate i have a duty to get her and finally Mm -hmm. she's like let's cut the crap so yeah like that's not what you're thinking like you need to go get her because you love her it's so good, but love wasn't a spell, some kind of benediction to be whispered, a balm or a cure-all. It was a single fragile thread, which grew stronger through connection, through shared hardship and honored trust. Zoya's mother had been wrong. It wasn't love that had ruined her. It was the death of it. She believed that love would do the work of the living. She had let the thread fray and snap. How long had Zoya fear being bound to others? How little had she trusted that thread of connection? That was why she shied away from the gifts the dragon offered. They demanded she open her heart to the world, and she turned away, afraid of what... She might lose. Jareth had known Jareth had seen it all open the door. Love was on the other side and it was terrifying. Oh my God. I just, <laughs> I was like at that point alone and it was like 1130 at night. I was just like sitting on my couch, like rocking back and forth, like, <laughs> like too over 
overwhelmed. It's such a great message. And she's so much more powerful for it. It's not a weakness like her mother wanted it to. She is the most powerful. Mm -hmm. I can't. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally and figuratively, so much more powerful for it. And to have that all again come on the heels of the Darkling in this book. Be in the Darkling again. I mean, Darkling's going to Darkling. Of course, he's going to try to manipulate everyone. He thinks at one point how Zoya was still vulnerable, still malleable. Her anger made her easy to control. When this war was done and the casualties counted, she might once more be in need of a shepherd. Well, it's like, fuck you, dude. Stop grooming your potential victims. I just can't. Who the fuck do you think you are? Like, he obviously knows shit about Zoya because there is no fucking way in any reality that she would fall for his shit ever, ever, ever again. Yeah. But he's not wrong in that she is so vulnerable. But her journey to that point makes it so clear that she's never going to fall back to the position that she was in with him before. And so... That's what, again, when we say how Lee made a lot of this scene really earned, what bigger fuck you to the Darkling than to have Zoya Nazielinski be the fragging queen of Ravka and do what the Darkling never could do and do it on the basis of love and not power or wanting to be just the baddest, mm-hmm. darkest demon in town? No. Like, she became exactly what he thought he was. Like right. she actually is that person. Yeah, it's, it's so good. And then I that just makes me think about like what type of queen she'll be. I love it so much. When I was again looking through my notes back to the be- something about a zoo, uh, an old zoo, and Zoya says Zoya had seen the weathered illustrations: a leopard in a jeweled collar, a lemur wearing a velvet waistcoat and performing tricks, a white bear imported his bea that had mauled three different keepers before escaping and had never been caught. And Zoya hoped that it had some way found its way home. And what I really love about that is it comes early and it shows that there's this internal softness to Zoya. And that's not to say that that's the most laudable part of her or so that, that she should rid herself of her external bracing presence, because that is what is so important about, about Zoya and it's what Nikolai says to her at the end you know the apparat when he like gets up at the council like fuck the apparat the fact that he's still alive actually at the end of this is like one of my biggest grievances just just why why I don't understand it but like you know he says she'll never be the mother that Rav can need she's cruel she's cold and Zoya thinks like yeah I am and then when she's talking to Nikolai afterwards and everyone's cleared out uh, she's like, I, she parrots that back. I can't do this. I'm all these things, this, that, and the other. And Nikolai says to her, like, yeah, you're all of those things, but you are more. And everyone will love you because of who you are, not despite it, because you are all of these things. And that would make what makes you so great. And that's why he loves her. And that's why I love her. And that's why Ravka's going to love her. And it's just that softness is is so... It is so important to her. She cares so much. And she's looked her whole life as softness as weakness. You have to be hard. You have to mm-hmm. be, she says to Jen, or to Count Kierigan earlier, there is no secret self. I'm not going to reveal another me to you. I'm going to, not going to be tamed by you. I'm the King's general. I'm the commander of the second army. And right now my people are facing down the enemy without me. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was literally about to read that. I was, like, I was just laughing because I was literally like, opening my mouth and then you did it and I was like, ha, we're totally twinning. Oh, we always are twinning. 
Yeah, that's true. But like, what there is, I mean, what she's implying is that there is no softer side to her. There is, but that doesn't mean that he need, like that. That's not information for him to have. What she's the point of what she she's saying still stands, and that is that she is still this person, whether there is a, a softer part of her or not. She mm-hmm. is still the general. She is still this abrasive, sharp person, and she's not going to fall in love one day and become some, you know become simpering or or meek or anything else she's always right. going to be zoya and i think that was going to be a good segue into like one of my favorite things about the nikolai zoya dynamic and we'll talk about that in a second but what i love then is how this this quote gives me chills and it might be one of my favorite quotes of the of the whole thing because it's such a good thesis statement for zoya and like also a type of queen she's going to be I should have killed the Fjordans. I should have given them a wound from which they'd never recover. But that was an old voice, the voice of a hurt child who had no one to trust, who feared that there would always be someone more powerful and more cruel than her. She would forever be a bloodthirsty, furious girl, but she might allow herself to be something else too. If she had helped to earn peace for Ravka, then maybe she could grant her own heart a bit of peace as well. Handle it because like it's, the balance between those two sides of her and these different elements to her is what's going to make her such a good queen and that she's willing to do that for, for Ravka. And if if she's going to give that much of herself to Ravka, she's finally going to let herself have the benefit of that too. I just, it's too much for me to handle Deja. (laughs) She's melting down again. One of the more rewarding things I've ever read in terms of a a character like Zoya to kind of move through her own trauma and, but not in any way capitulate on who she um, is in a way that like, just really maintains everything that I loved about her kind of from the beginning but it gives her room to like have the life that she deserves. I can't. Well, it's just like, she doesn't have to change or become outwardly softer for her to change and be like, accept herself better and be happier and be more powerful. Like one of my least favorite tropes in like other media is when they have like this kind of broody goth type character who's like depressed or miserable or something. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they fall in love or something and then suddenly they're like wearing pink and, right. you know, dyeing their hair back to a regular color and and just becoming somebody else completely like you. <laughs> and just because you're happy doesn't mean you dress or act a certain way. You know what I mean? Like, I right. I hate that trope so much. And so I love that that Zoya can progress and she can accept herself more and and become a little bit softer, but without changing fundamentally. Yeah. I mean, one of the first things she says at the end when she's like railing the council is like, will you have a soldier queen? And it's, that's who she is. And that's why she's such a badass. And she's not going to capitulate on that at all. And it's just uh, it, to have more of that is, is so good. She says earlier to Nikolai too, when I was a little girl, I thought I had a golden spirit that it would light everything it touched, that it would make me beloved like a hero in a story, but that's not who I am. Whatever is inside me is sharp and gray as the thorn wood. I wasn't born to be a bride. I was made to be a weapon. And I just wrote my notes, you can be both, baby. Like, mm-hmm. 
And it was so good about it. And it it feels so earned. It feels so true to who she is. And hmm, mm-hmm. I just I really love it. I couldn't love her more. I don't think. Did you want to bring up the uh, repression attic? Oh my comparison? god! Yes. Okay. So this is again a good segue into talking about Eli because it's one of my favorite scenes with them. Yeah. So. If you've listened to any of our Raven Cycle and adjacent episodes, um, we love to call Declan Lynch's attic where he keeps all of his like fancy paintings outside of his like vanilla world, his repression attic or his um, what else have we called it? His his secret attic, his repression crying attic. attic. Crying attic. It's like where he goes <laughs> to like show emotion. And so I texted Tasia the other day. I was like, is Zoya's garden the equivalent of the repression attic? And it totally is because she is unwilling to show that side of herself. So, um, and we didn't talk about this before, but the, this garden that she has, you know, the grief garden, if you will, the grief garden. Yeah. So she has in the King of Scars, she sneaks off all the time at night and Eli's kind of wondering like, who's she meeting with? Like blah, blah, blah. And it turns out she's got this whole ass garden where for every single person who has died in her life, she has a plant for mm, too much. It's so much. And she lets like Nikolai follows her into this just to find out where she's going. Right. And she knows he's there the whole time. He thinks he's being sneaky, but she knows he's there. <laughs> and it's a wonder that-, that he like can be storm hunt sometimes. I know. Like, well, it was just really not a show that he is like, has no chill when it comes to her. Mm hmm. And that they're very in tuned with each other because mm-hmm. if she's going to recognize anybody in the dark, it's going to be yeah. him, right? Mm-hmm. So, but even though she knows he's following her and she's going to this like most secret of places to her, most most protected place <laughs> to her, and she lets him follow her. She doesn't stop him. She takes him to this place, like shows him her heart, basically. And it's it's a lot. It's a lot. It's such a lovely it's such a um a great natural building of their relationship you know she thinks earlier about how she hadn't spoken to her parents in years since they tried to sell her off and she thinks she'd never told anyone about what had happened that day she'd let her life her family and her losses stay in the past but lately it felt hard not to be known like keeping herself together was all the more difficult without someone to see who she truly was she's letting me <laughs> for her and you guys should see Corinne's face. Like every time she says any anything about Zoya, she stops for a second and just looks heavenward. Oh, <laughs> just- I, I love her. It like overwhelms me. They the fact that she's willing to like let him in to those secret parts of herself just really mm. you can't. Uh, and like she's like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she thinks too that like you know, she thought her aunt was it. Like thought if, if I was lucky enough to be loved by one person in this life, that should be enough. And that's what she tried to tell herself. And like, that's not enough. That's not enough at all. And yeah, not only is it not enough, it's also not true because she's like, she makes excuses for Nikolai several times whenever he tries to talk to her like seriously about their relationship. And she's like, Oh, he's just, talking about this or he's only asking me that because you know I'm I'm a good general or or mm-hmm. you know she makes excuses for for people loving her Jenya David like you know she held all of them at arms dis- arms distance um for so long trying not to get close to them 
that is what she does exactly and i think this whole like i i love this is like such a good nikolai way of things here like she could have just very lee could have very clearly left this as straight metaphor but then like they call it out as like oh this isn't a metaphor i'll just read this whole thing like they're in this garden and zoya says this about it it has like this kind of thorny like overgrow on it that's kind of protecting it and zoya is like making excuses for it like oh this is like ugly it's prickles and spines and anger covered in pretty useless blossoms and fruit too better to eat there is nothing in it worth loving how wrong you are zoya's gaze snapped to his her eyes flashing silver dragon's eyes am i Look at the way it grows, protecting everything within these walls, stronger than anything else in the garden, weathering every season. No matter the winter it endures, it blooms again and again. What if the winter is just too long and hard? What if it can't bloom again? Then you'll be branches without blossoms, he whispered against her hair. And you let the rest of us be strong until the summer comes. It wasn't a metaphor. Of course it wasn't. But like... Just screaming right now. It's fine. Uh, should we just like segue full on into Nikolai and Zoya? Because oh, I, think- I, I, I thought we were there. I, I oh, yeah. There. <laughs> it felt like we were there. I just wanted to make sure we were like definitely there. Okay. Dear listener, in case you didn't know, this is the Nikolai and Zoya freakout hour of the podcast. Yeah. Because mm, so we should talk about ribbons then. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's mm. obsessed with that ribbon. So am I now. Uh, his demon is even obsessed with it. I think what I keep bringing this up, I think like every other day in our like group chat and stuff, just Nikolai's demon untying the hair ribbon from her hair is like a, yeah. like a God tier moment for me. I, Okay, well, first, I want to so like rewind back because we, I didn't actually know this before on any of my previous re- readings of King of Scars. But then I saw something on Tumblr since we recorded that episode about how there's this casual, like, throwaway line where Isaac is masquerading as Nikolai and he's, like, in the, it's got his hands in the pocket of whatever jacket of Nikolai he's wearing. And he pulls out silver beads from a kefta. So it's like Nikolai is just like a little like klepto when it comes to things of Zoya's and it's so soft. It He's got like a little me. Zoya shrine in his closet. Literally, oh, everything with the with the ribbon is so good for moment one. There one one of the first quotes is something that actually Lee posted as a teaser at one point, like that um she's got this ribbon in her hair and it had like the damnable effect of um, making him want to like take it out or like undo it so like he's got a ribbon kink from like day one but the oh my god what is so good about the entire demon ribbon scene is like it's hot as hell you know that like moment in the 2005 pride and prejudice hand clench yeah the hand clench as he walks away and it's like that's basically what um nikolai's hand does when the uh demon touches it Mm -hmm. it's like almost like he can touch it himself so it's just like it's so actually fraught in so many ways but like there were like moments of recognition from each other in that scene she felt the need in him as palpably as if he'd spoken don't turn away from me anyone but you was that the dragon's eye opening inside her or did she just recognize her own want there was no one else she would trust to see her at her weakest her most fearful her most monstrous then he says what if i told you that the demon will always be with me that there will always be a part of me tied to the darkling to the shadow power would i still be your king or would you fear me would you come to despise me as you despise him so what we were talking about at the beginning, the fact that like they both have these monst- monsters, quote unquote, within them, 
they both master them and use them for good. And they're part of who they are is just mm. Mm -hmm. every scene they share or even they don't share just anytime they're near each other or thinking about each other. This book is so full of them. I highlighted like nothing but Nikolai and Zoya moments from this book. It was so overwhelming. Like it, like you said, we were fed, we were fed so well. The longing and the the, God, the, the the mutual pining. I like I I my my fists are clenched. Yeah, and that is why you know I I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, we again, if you listen to any of our Raven Cycle content, we're like so big into Adam and Ronan. Definitely my OTP, but like. The difference with Nigla and Zoya is that I love everything about their characters individually and their growth and the, the way they mirror each other, plus this like longing and this tension, which is so good. It's and it's also that like I'm just like madly in love with both of them, is what it mm-hmm. comes down to. And like that for me is what makes sets them like apart and different because it's like, oh no, no, like I want you to be with me, both of you. Yeah. Come on over. It's just it's, that, that good Nikolai Zoya sandwich. It's so good. And what, but what I think too, we kind of talked about this. I actually don't know if we talked about it on the King of Scars episode, but we've definitely talked about it off air is that they are a gender swapped play on a lot of what we really like in romances and in YA, just generally across the board. The one kind of dark, twisty person who is soft for one person who is like and I mean, sunshine. Yeah, Lee Lee throws it out there, like just in in words. I have this down as one of my favorite quotes. It's maybe relentless gloom and persistent sunshine were the right combination. Like she's just putting it right out there. That's exactly it. That's one of the best romantic dynamics in in anything in in pop culture, and that is Nikolai and Zoya. But like you said, it's gender swapped. Typically, the boy is the brooding, darker, grumpier one and the girl is the sunshine i love it so much that it's switched i love it so much that it's switched and Kali is going to be essentially like the, Her arm of candy. the u.s first lady like mm-hmm. the first lady of the united states has to be like the social chair of the white house and like that's basically what nikolai is going to do and he like relishes that because that's always what it's a really perfect job for him it's so good and Just, I, his job is to charm people yeah. What I think is kind of interesting too, that Lee, I don't know how intentionally she's kind of like playing at it. And Nikolai says things and ne- and Zoya call- calls him out on things that quite frankly, if like, if a woman said them or thought them, the thing about uh, like, oh, I think about the next world when she was in this one. Some of that stuff, like if a girl says it, it'll almost be like, oh, you're like kind of pathetic or like, you're so yeah. like into that. And Zoya actually says something to him. When she, uh, he's asking her basically like to share their life together at the end. And he says, what if I say, I can't bear to lose you? A smile tugged at her lips. I'd say you're a liar that claims like that belong to romantic ninnies. And it's like, it's kind of like almost like a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Nikolai uh, gets, a, gets to do a lot of things and is very swoony in a lot of ways that I think if it, again, if it was reversed, women would be down upon maybe for showing that much mm-hmm. of a will oh, definitely to be committed to a man in their life and so like really everything about the gender swap nature of their dynamic is also just what makes them a top tier couple they're so good it's so good so many times i mean like and nikolai is basically that meme that like that like kim kardashian me and it's like i'm mm-hmm. trying to draw i'm trying to drop hints that 
I'm in love with Zoya. And he's just like, I'm in love with Zoya constantly. Like he, he thinks at one point, um, love is not known for making men reasonable. I think that's one of the few things Isaac and I had in common an inability to stop loving whom we should not. And it's like very pointed about mm-hmm. Zoya mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and the way she's just like, I couldn't possibly be. And he literally says, he's like, I would make you my queen because I want you. I want you all the time. There's so many good swoon moments. And we don't worry. We are still going to have a full swoon section. At the oh, end yeah. Of episode, no, guys. this is like, don't worry. But like, but with any pairing, what really makes them special is how they connect and grow together. And that's, we get, we get that so well here. So while we're talking on like, Sunni romantic stuff though i think we need to talk about david and jenya because <laughs> it's like really upsetting to me but it's really important <laughs> like we talked about before in our trilogy episode how this honestly best romantic Sunni moments in that trilogy are david and jenya related they are the absolute best i feel as though we cursed david because the day the book came out they released some new stills from the show and the guy who's playing david is very very handsome and i was like how dare they make david so hot like i can't handle that and then he later that day i read his death like she really too amped up all these beautiful moments from them and it it's Mm -hmm. great because it serves a plot purpose like zoya is looking at them and their interactions together and nikolai is too such a interesting year for their own longing for each other they see what they could have and they're keeping that their distance from giving themselves that at that point and they're so envious of it oh they're so envious of it and it it's so beautiful the twist with the wedding that it's actually their wedding is gorgeous the their vows during that are so good it's just it's it's really beautiful and it's really cruel that on their wedding night he is killed i i don't know it's gonna take me a really long time for me to get over that because that funeral scene in a lot of ways is a catalyst for zoya because she has to speak and she has to start putting her grief out there and she thinks later like i can't believe i if you'd told me i would cry over over david i wouldn't have believed you but her speech there is so powerful. Like, and she does it for Jenya because Jenya can't speak in that moment. So it's like, even though she definitely doesn't want to speak and she doesn't feel comfortable opening herself up like that, she does it like it's a sacrifice. She does it for Jenya because Jenya can't. Yeah. And it's it's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. You know, the the, the bit with the notebook too. Was, you know, I have a couple of, I have some swoon um from David in the soon section, but I love this. You know, my love, there's ink all over your face. Doesn't matter. The correct response is beautiful wife. Won't you kiss it away? Spontaneity, David noted thoughtfully and drew out a journal to make note of this latest instruction. I'll be writing next time. So he has this notebook where he's writing down ways to please his wife because he loves her so much, but these like kind of natural social cues don't come as naturally yeah. for him. And so like, she like puts the notebook with him so that like he's ready for her in the next life. I can't. It's it's too upsetting. I love this moment too. Zoya sees how they work together and it kind of gives me a glimpse in retrospect of like how things could be for Zoya and Nikolai going forward. 
Zoya found her curled up on the settee besides David's desk, the light from his lamp making a circle around them. Her boots were off and she had tied her bright auburn hair into a knot. She had a half-eaten apple in one hand and a book on her lap. The sun emblazoned on her eye patch, glinting. She looked like a beautiful rakish pirate who had wandered off the pages of a storybook, a bit of sparkling chaos in David's carefully ordered world. And like, isn't that what like Nikolai and Zoya are going to be? You know, Nikolai being this like actual pirate, I would hear he would say, who's like, they're going to work together in that same intimate way. And it's really sad that they all don't get to, they don't all get to do that. Yeah. And I think we just need to give him his, his due here. He has figured out this way to weaponize missiles for their use and is so hesitant to do that because his invention of the collar for Alina is what set off a lot of the events of the trilogy. And he regretted that and did not want his invention to be used in that same way for harming others and for killing essentially. And he was so detached before, like emotionally detached from everything that he did for him. It was all about all the science, all the, Mm -hmm. the nuts and bolts of it. But he's grown so much in, in the last few years and in his relationship with Jenya and he's really thinking about the bigger picture stuff and he's allowing himself to think about the, the ramification, like emotional and, and big scale ramifications of these things. And it's just, yeah. And he's gone, you know, he's, he's, I know it's, it's really upsetting. It's really interesting too, to look at it. In the grander scheme of the novel, you know, we get, I forget what her name is, the queen of the, of Juhan, who is mm-hmm. making these winged mechanical soldiers. And it's like a horrific humanity to be doing this to people. And she says, well, how is this different than the missiles that Ravka is making and this that Feared is making? And, you know, that really just draws a a line between our heroes in this book and what kind of rulers they are and how much they struggle with these decisions. And David was at the the heart of that. And they do have to make the missiles and they do have to have them at the ready to, to save their people. But it's a really interesting commentary on the consequences of war, the casualties of war and David just being the embodiment of like the human side of the, of, of brilliance and innovation, but how it can just be turned and used for nefarious purposes. It's just, you, it's too good for us. And it's really upsetting that Jenny has to live without him. And I'm really mad. Yeah. I was going to say like, not to, not to like diminish David and his own death, but I just keep thinking about Jenya mm. and, and how this is affecting her. Like after everything that she's been through and, I'm just so I'm just so sad for her. Yeah. Like she's she's had it enough. Like give her a break. It's that's what's really hard because you know, we uh in in a second here we're gonna transition, I think, into our uh segment on the Darkling that we have return of special guest Aubrey to talk about and some of our thoughts on the trilogy. Um and we talk about the end here with the the Darkling at length in that, but you know, there's some question to me a little bit about like the idea of putting a female character through so much trauma and then having her like come out on the other side, like stronger. And that's a trope that sometimes I don't love how it's done because it feels very 
it, it feels kind of icky to be like, okay, well, you were raped and you were horribly tortured and all those things happened to you, um, but you're a better person. So that it. you could have character development. Right. But I, yeah. I don't, and I can't pinpoint why it works for me, for Jenya. I mean, she actually kind of even says that at the end, like she forgives the Darkling for her scars um, because they made, that was an important turning point for her in her life but like she can't forgive him for like some of the things he did to her as a child including essentially giving her out to the king but like man it is it so it does work for me on the whole but yeah it really does make you think like why like why does jenna have to go through all this and i i don't think for her it's an, it's like a part and parcel of her character arc i don't think that that's the yeah case, but it is just it's so upsetting everyone so many people are paired off at the end of this and like Grisha live long lives. Like how long is she going to live without him? It makes me really sad. It makes me really, yeah. really sad. But uh, I'm glad she's got everybody around her that she has, but God, it fucking sucks. <laughs> Billy really does suck. I think that happy note. <laughs> While we're on this conversation, let's, I think, pivot now into this. I'm going to record with our friend Aubrey to talk about everything involving the dark light. Now we are really excited to be joined once again by our friend Aubrey, who, if you'll recall, if you've listened to our Shadow and Bone trilogy episode, was there on that episode with us. And by our own admission, we had her on that episode to serve as a counter to my Nintasia's anti-darkling sentiments. So after this book, we knew we had to have her back to kind of debrief on the darkling as a whole. So thank you, Aubrey, so much for coming back with us. Thanks for having me back. Hey, guys. Um, It's nice to have the gang back together again. (laughs) Yes, again, multiple times in the most recent weeks here. And we love that. I also think I'm happy to report based on our off-air conversations that we're all closer to the same page a little bit more in this book when it comes to the darkling. Yeah, a hundred percent. I feel a little vindicated, y'all. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> I, you absolutely should. You should, and I think that I kind of listened back to some part of our previous um, episode when you were on, and I think a lot of what you said during that episode and what I think I was saying in in contrast to that was how those things didn't work for me but they worked for me here and they made sense to me here. And that's, I think my biggest takeaway on the darkling in this book. I think like most of our complaints about the handling of his character from the shadow and bone series was, it was like answered in this one. It was just done so much better, which makes sense because, you know, as we've talked about, she has grown enormously as a writer since then. But we did get, I think, so much more interiority, so much more just like solid motivation that made sense to us this time. So I I was really happy. Before we dive in deeper, though, I'm interested just to hear directly from you, Aubrey, you know, as someone who did really like him in the trilogy, what are your thoughts, just kind of independent of our previous conversation on what happened with him in this book, because a lot of people who are super into the darkling 
don't like what happened in this book. So I guess in a nutshell, what are your thoughts? I mean, I love it, honestly. And I think part of it is because I never thought that like she was going to bring the Darkling back and that we were going to get some like Dark Lena redemption or something. Like I think Alina ends up with Mal and that's her story. And it might not be the story I would have written, but it's Lee's story and that's fine. Like that's, that's where it goes. I like that the Darkling is so sure of his point of view, but I do think grows in this book. And I feel like that growth starts in his relationship with Alina in the original trilogy and the way that even though we're not getting any of his interiority, but we do see like confusion on his face sometimes and, and the way that he feels about her. And when he comes back, I think that those cracks in his surety that he is the only one who could ever save Ravka and the Grisha and that he's the only one who should lead and that, you know, every other human's little lives don't mean anything at all in comparison to the revolution um, that he needs to lead. Yeah. That's still there to a certain extent. Like he's not apologetic about that, but I think that he is able to see that maybe in some ways it's not him. And some of that is Alina and some of that is Zoya. And I think seeing who Zoya is and what she has become. And I mean, he can't really outclass a dragon. Uh, much as he might like to. And yeah. he still gets to save Ravka at the end. And he doesn't apologize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think maybe talking about this stuff with him and Alina is a good place to start. Because I think I'm on record. I don't, can't remember if it was on the, uh, the Shadow Bone trilogy episode when we talked at the end about our predictions for this book. And certainly in the King of Scars episode, though, where I was like, I don't want... Alina to have any part of this. Her story is done and I was very satisfied by it. But one of my favorite scenes in this entire book is the Darkling Alina male scene. It's so good. And it's really interesting to look and poke and prod at their relationship a little more there. I don't know. What do you guys think? I loved scene? it. It was definitely yeah. one of, I mean, yeah, in in a book full of so many great things. It was, I think, one of my favorite parts, especially because just the way that she tells him to wipe his feet and he's he's almost sort of cowed by her a little bit. Like, obviously not because he's playing up something because he's trying to get something from them, but he is kind of put in his place a little bit. And what I love about it the most, I think, is Alina herself and the fact that, like, she she probably does still carry some Darkling-related trauma but you don't see that at all. Like she's so confident. She's so sure of herself. She doesn't show him that he's affecting her in any way. And like, she's just moved on with her life and you kind of see the darkling react to that from her. And I just, I thought it was great. Yeah. I mean, I feel like she and Mal both, they know who they are and they're firm in their relationship in a way that um, they were not in the previous trilogy mm-hmm. um, and they have a life together. And so like the darkling can't threaten that, you know, that emotion. And I think that he sees that and it is hilarious. That it's he so and funny. Immediately like get into the same thing. And that Mal is just like, you just came back from the dead. <laughs> you gave up your powers <laughs> and you have the same argument that you had right before. Like you just picked it up. Like no time has passed at all. I feel like um, that scene was like the most I've ever liked all three of them <laughs> and, and yeah. them interacting with each other. I, I thought it was, it was really funny. 
it was very like Mal was like all of us in that moment. Like you guys are just rehashing the same ethical bullshit you guys have talked about yeah. forever now. And it was really funny to see Mal of all people to be like the audience avatar right there. But yeah, it was really yeah. good. Yeah. I just, I thought that scene was really well done. And yeah, I mean, I kind of felt the same way. I felt like, you know, Alina's goodbye and like saying his name, that moment is really emotional for me in the end of the Shadow and Bone trilogy, because I think it speaks to sort of the sadness and the loneliness that's behind everything that the Darkling is doing. And so I didn't think I wanted to see them together again, but it was, it was great. And then of course he uses them and gets his powers back because that's what he needed. Right. And so that's what I really love, like the interplay between that and that scene. We we're not in his POV yet, but it gets like the setup for ultimately his POV chapters, which is for me like that he is a incapable of redemption, B uninterested in redemption and C is still has the same goals in mind, but he starts to think, later too about like reflecting back on that conversation with Alina that you know she, she tells him at one point during that conversation it's not too late for you and he says I didn't come here to speak lies but then he thinks to himself later Alina might be right but he hadn't fought his way back from death for the sake of being saved there was no penance for him to make everything he had done was for Grisha for Ravka so I think that interiority is kind of like just what you were saying, Tisha, is so important to have that to show that, yes, he did have this kind of connection with Alina and he she did bring out whatever humanity he had left. And he definitely shows more moments of humanity here, but their paths were never going to sync up in the main trilogy and they've totally diverged here. In some ways, I wonder, too, how much that conversation with Alina rattled him more than he thought that it would. Because Zoya notes during that conversation too, like she sees him like kind of react to some of the things that Alina says. And so that's all really interesting too, to see how like perhaps then the rest of his journey in the book is maybe like affected by the fact that Alina has come to terms with the loss of her powers has, has pointed to the fact that, you know, the loss of her powers was because and she says this, that because she fell prey to the same greed that drove him, she paid the price for tampering with the Mursat. So he's kind of, in some ways, I feel like reacting to that. Cause he's like, Oh shit. Like I'm not anywhere near her, her level of handling. This is kind of how I looked at that. Like, was he reacting to Alina then, kind of in some ways? Or on the flip side, in some ways, I think maybe he didn't like care that much about Alina at all, because then one of the things he says later to someone else is that you and I are going to change the world, which is they're hyping that in the Shadow and Bone trailers right now. Yeah. In some ways, that's almost like, oh, yeah, Alina was just another cog in the wheel of the Darkling's grand plan. That's how I read that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, mean, I, I have kind of mixed feelings on it. And I like both interpretations. I think they're both kind of, they're both can be true, right? In some extent, like Alina affects him in some ways. And then other ways, he's just too far gone. Yeah. I think she's always affected him in some ways and she continues, which is why. But I think that, you know, you and I are going to change the world. I love the idea that that's just something he used to sort of manipulate her because she was easy to manipulate. I mean, I think some of the things that he does in the trilogy are to manipulate 
Alina. And there are times when he's also legitimately thrown by her. And there are scenes where I think that you see that vulnerability. Right. Whether or not that worked for you in the original trilogy, I think it it works better. Yeah. Yeah. You see it more now reflecting. I think it definitely is like a little column A, a little column B. Like he is, I think, affected by Alina. And I bought that more in this book than I did in Shadow and Bone. That he is a little bit affected by her because he does continue to think about like those words weigh on him a little bit. But I also do think like that moment where he's like, don't worry, brother, you and I are going to change the world. Like that is a script for him. Like mm-hmm. who knows how many times yeah. he has used that on however many people, all the kings, all the, who you know, all, all these people that he's influenced over his you know, uh, hundreds and centuries of years of life that that is just a script for him. And it's, I feel like for, for those kinds of, like, I, I talked about this a lot in the original shadow and bone episode that we did that I am typically very much, uh, a lover of like that kind of character, but the way he was done in shadow and bone didn't really work for me. And it worked for me so much better here because I feel like for the first time I saw, like an aspect to his personality that was more than just like power hungry genocidal maniac. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like he had so much more personality. I've compared him like to Loki from, from the Marvel movies. Like he's kind of just a little shit. He's an unremorseful like rascal. And he was so much more fun in this one because of it. Yeah. Particularly by the end. I felt that a lot too. And there's that moment with Mal where, where he was like, I understand we're, we're blood related. Mal shrugged. We all have relatives we don't like. It had very big like Thor in Avengers energy where he was like, he's my brother. Well, he's killed blah, blah, blah people. He's adopted. Like that had like the same energy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I liked that those moments of levity from him, which I felt like were sorely lacking in the original trilogy in a lot of ways. Uh, so those were really fun too. But I then I think one of my favorite things is, and again, we said a lot of this to inform the original trilogy and I've said that it didn't quite work for me, but some of these quotes just really kind of put into perspective way better than anything I'd read before. Like the effect of the passage of time on him and the effect on, on all the things that he had had done were just all so so it had such a profound effect on him. You know, he says at one point too that he had the first Lanthoff king was kind of a good king and he came to him and he thought that was going to be a solution, but then the next king wasn't and it just cycled on and on and on. And so he had sought an end power that not, could not be questioned, might that could not be reckoned with the result had been the fold. So he is kind of driven over the centuries to kind of very strong dangerous methods and the result on that we see the direct effect on him this quote just kind of really staggered me when i was rereading these sections that calling on the murzat was painful like a breath torn from his lungs a moment of terror as his life was ripped away to form another creation abomination but he was used to it by now it's like that gives me chills and you don't get that he in the original i mean that's part we've talked a lot about the the downfall of the one p person point of view in the original trilogy but like it's not necessarily sympathetic it is something you have like empathy for and i understand more and it's just coming across so much better yeah i think it's so much easier to see why he doesn't think that what he did was wrong and it sort of falls in with 
you know, leaders that we've seen in war all the time, you know, what he did with the fold with Alina's power is, I mean, is it any different, you know, I mean, take it into a real world, but um, then the bombing of Dresden in World War II or dropping an atomic bomb in Japan. I mean, that's the sort of thing he's doing. He is demonstrating strength to other people so that they won't attack his people anymore but he's just willing to sacrifice his own people to do so because that's the cost in his mind and that's worth it for the long run and it's something I'll, you you you're not going to agree with it's not good mm-hmm. but it's not it's a weird it's not um, I'm trying to think how to describe it it's not good leadership but it's not a special kind of evil that you see out there. You know, it's kind of like a human form of evil, which is interesting because he's so divorced from his humanity. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah. Thanks, Tasha. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I think then is really interesting though. So like at this point of the novel, like I'm getting, I'm texting with you guys. I'm also getting texts from like some of my other friends who are like a couple of days behind me in reading being like, are we being primed for redemption here? Are we like, what is happening? I'm not on board with this. And I, that's not what I wanted to happen either. So I, I felt that way kind of too. But what I think is really interesting, and I quite frankly, didn't quite pick up on it as much when I was reading this the first time, because I read it in a day as we all did. And just was like, flip, 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 flip. And quite because I just wasn't as interested in him. I didn't read it as closely, but to see his change in mindset then from our Grisha, like I'm going to save them to what is my legacy and how am I going to be remembered is really fascinating. And I think what makes this so super interesting, you know, he thinks at one point too, he's like, he's the blight that's going on. That's like stemming Mm -hmm. from the fold. Was this his legacy? This wound where nothing would grow a blight that spread even as his nation marched to war. So he's, he's thinking about it. And that like switch to quite frankly, which is a more egotistical side of the darkling is kind of the embodiment of what I think readers like Tasia and I saw in him in the trilogy more is this, the power and the appeal and the, the lust of power versus the more potentially like good motives he had. I just, I loved that. Dis, you can say the descent or however you, view the ultimate ending from this book. I think that was all just that process from him was so fascinating to read. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I was much more empathetic to the way that like, you could see how the years had weighed on him all these centuries that he had been trying so hard to, to make this thing happen, to make his people safe that he had devolved to this place where he was willing to sacrifice his own people in order to make this happen. And then he finally gets, you know, it's like, you're you're just so tired where you're like, all right, well now I just, I just want to be loved. I want to be worshiped. I want to be remembered. So just like that motivation for me was so much easier to understand as it was represented here than it was in uh, shadow and bone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, I think, you know, I feel like maybe I texted this to you, Corinne or to both of you, but like if Lee ever wants to make a lot of money, she could write a Midnight Sun style version of the Shadow and Bone trilogy from the Darkling's point of view. And I would read the heck out of that, especially after reading this, because Mm -hmm. 
I think it's fascinating to see like what he's thinking or why he did it. It yeah. makes him, it, he's a richer character for it. Mm-hmm. And, but I, I mean, I, you know, I think part of him thinking about the legacy, it's seeing the blight. It's also that Alina asks him like, why do you have to be the one to save Ravka mm-hmm. all the time? And the way that that question is echoing in his head too, as he's watching, you know, the young King and Zoya, who's still, you know, years away from, learning as much about her powers he knows about his and i think i think he sees himself a little bit in them yeah which you know makes sense well that's what i think is so interesting like the again the more i think about these chapters and it's so chewy too because one of my first things too after i read this the first time i think i texted you aubrey like what we don't get his pov at the end after the battle scene. So we don't know his precise motivations for coming back at the end, advocating essentially for Zoya by like trying to overthrow the apparatus in that last scene there. And it's like, well, why, what is it? And I think that that's really an interesting choice by Lee, because I think I don't want to speak for Tasia, but my ultimate thing, because of my, I can't totally unring the bell of what I think about the darkling is that it's, primarily ego at the end. But I would say basically yeah. kind of what you just said, Aubrey, that readers like yourself might find that it's more like, this is the way I save Ravka. I can't do it. And I'm going to, in my way, pass on my acceptance of the fact that like it should be Zoya. And that's mm-hmm. what's great about it. You can read it both ways, I think. And I think it definitely goes both ways because... I think part of it is definitely like a flair for the dramatic and him being a narcissist and wanting to surprise us, the darkling, everybody um, <laughs> at, at this meeting and come in and, and like his way of controlling things, right? Like he comes in, he's like, well, you all want this King. You all want this one. Well, I'm, I'm going to suggest something else because I'm going to control these elements. This is my chessboard. I'm moving these pieces around. Right. And, and then I think it also, like I got, almost a little taste of like, and maybe this isn't intentional. Maybe I'm like reading a little bit too much into it, but it almost felt like, or I would like it to feel like um, kind of a, a redemption, like his redemption towards Zoya. Like, I know I screwed you over and I know that your devotion in me was something that I completely destroyed. So let me hype you up right now. Yeah. I feel like again, Tasia, you're kind of neutral. Like you're <laughs> Switzerland again, which is something you said in the last episode mm-hmm. about like some of our feelings on some of these things. Cause I I'm not willing to give him quite that much credit towards that. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I like for I want that for Zoya. I, right, I don't necessarily sure. think it's there, but I, I want like a little part of him to be like, like, my bad. Right. <laughs> Here, have have yeah, a little of this. Yeah. Because the last thing he says in his last POV chapter is that, like, first of all, Yuri's still inside him this whole time, which is, like, very odd. And I just kind of have to ignore a lot of it. But, you know, Nikolai's about to sacrifice himself. And Yuri's, like, reverent of it. It, it, Like, just in awe of this. And, you know, the Darkling is shocked by it. He doesn't quite understand that sacrifice. But then that chapter ends by saying he couldn't deny what would happen to the Grisha if the Fjordans won the day and there would be no miracle, no grand resurrection for him if there was no one to see it. 
and he does help Nikolai. But then after that happens, he notices that all the starless around him have been on the ground praying. They didn't even see it. So he's kind of like, what's the point of that? <laughs> <laughs> so like, then it says like, he has that little rumination on, on how no one's going to see his grand resurrection. And so he turns his back on the left left. Lanthav King. And I have in my notes, Darkling's going to Darkling because he is, I think at this point, we has this, this ego, which certainly comes out at the end. But I think again, like I said, I think it's really interesting that there is room for people who are perhaps more sympathetic or like the Darkling more to think that like his turn at the end is driven by like a pure purpose. And I'm I like, okay I don't with, think it was a pure purpose at all, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I maybe I'm putting words in Aubrey's mouth. I don't know what you think. I mean, Aubrey. I think I think the darling darkling is always like a mix of right selfishness and pure purpose and a love for the drama. And yeah, if it's not going to be him, right? I mean, he might not be saving it by being the leader. But is he saving Ravka by declaring that Zoya is a saint there on the battlefield and rallying people to her cause and then making sure that the Grisha get a Grisha ruler? You know, because the truth is like, I think he knows. It's not like these people are going to line up and follow him again very easily. I mean, he sees that. He's got these saints, but there's not that there's not that many of them following him around. Well, I think there is a harsh reality there too. When he met them and was like, Oh no, they're all idiots. Like they're a small group and they're all just fucking stupid. Yeah. Which is, yeah. So, that's, like comedy. that's very funny. Too. It was really good for him to like, he like just the eye rolling the like, Oh God. So I think, yeah, I, I, you have a good point there about like, at some point you got to be like, all right, well maybe I won't win, but I can still move these pieces around on the chessboard and make it so that I get, the outcome that I, that I want. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's what he gets. He gets, he gets a Grisha ruler who's going to live for a very long time, which means that that Ravka is always going to be safe for Grisha, you know, and he gets, I don't know. I think he has at least an appreciation for Nikolai by the end of that. So yeah. to, To leave it in good hands. I'm still like, pretty shook Aubrey by like when you mentioned when you were reading when we were all reading this for the first time through about how the first Lancelot King sounded a lot like Nikolai and I think that's such a lovely full circle moment then at the end after the Darkling has made this quote-unquote sacrifice when Nikolai thinks about like how he couldn't feel sorrow for the man the Darkling had become but he could regret the loss of someone who had begun with so much promise, so much belief in what might be accomplished if only he was clever enough, strong enough, brave enough to risk it all. Who might he have been if the world had been kinder, if Ravka had been better to its people all along? And so that's just like a lovely full circle moment if you think about Nikolai compared to that first king and how maybe just a couple of things have been different. And that is for me like the summation of where this book got me with the Darkling. Like she did the work. And I kind of, I felt that at the end. That was good. Yeah. Lee, so impressive. (laughs) So impressive. I mean, man, I do love that moment when he just like waltzes in to where they're deciding whether or not Zoya can be queen and blames the king's 
like illness on the apparat, even though it's something that he was involved in, but he knows the king can't argue against it because then he has to admit that he's a rapist. Yeah. So that just like finally gets revenge on the apparat for betraying him in the Shadow and Bone trilogy. Yeah, the apparatus had it coming for oh, a while. God. So, oh my god! Of all the characters that I am so fucking sick of, it the is the Oh my gosh, still alive makes me very mad. But I, that's like a very fun dark thing. We get such fun moments. Like I like we talked earlier about how he was, you know, shouting like Sancta on the battlefield, but he like winks at me. <laughs> I think I, I literally wrote in my notes that rascal. and then like at the end he just all of a sudden is like on his throne as though he never left like they couldn't find him just like hey here i am (laughs) surprise it's darkling yeah (laughs) so yeah i love i love those kind of moments and then we i think we're leading into here talking about this last scene which was so good and had so many different layers to it i think that the some of it to me is just kind of almost high comedy of him like yelling like i'm not sorry i found it so funny i don't know if i was supposed to but i thought it was hilarious but like it's like a brat till the very end right yeah and i like that like you said i like that side of the darkling but the genya stuff was so good i know arbor you have thoughts on on that stuff i know you love genya I love Jenya. So yes, hard to like the Darkling and love Jenya too. But I just think that the fact that she doesn't have to forgive him ever in this book is so great um, because I don't think that she should and that she gets to confront him and, you know, to tell him that she's sorry for the child that he should have protected and that he didn't. And you know, he's not sorry because that was a sacrifice he was willing to make for all of the rest of the Grisha. He should be sorry. And he, I mean, he tells Zoya that, you know, she's like a nation is it's people. It's Jenya. It's me. It's my aunt. And he's like, that's going to be a calculation. That's a lot harder for you to make as queen. You may find that more difficult and he's not wrong. Yeah. um, In some ways. And so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad though that Jenya does not give him that that she can forgive him for the scars, but she can't forgive him for what he did to her when she was a child by giving her to the king and queen. Yeah. And he's like, I don't remember asking you to forgive me. I don't need your forgiveness. (laughs) I I just love it so much. Like just on the verge of, of committing this, this great sacrifice, essentially, I mean, to undo the damage that he has created in the world Mm -hmm. by like still sacrificing himself and still to the very end, he's like, I'm not sorry. This is for me. Like, I'm doing this yeah. for me because I want to be remembered. Make a statue. Make sure people worship me. Yeah. That's all I care about. But I love that that comes then after, like, Jenny and Zoe have a moment of, like, let it not be for nothing. Like, everything we endured, like, mm-hmm. fine. And that's such, like, a high road for them, too. You know, some people could see that as, like, capitulating to your abuser in a lot of ways but that's not they they have ownership in that moment they make the decision it's it's brilliant and i i love how that all shook up yeah i'm not sorry i do not repent (laughs) i mean honestly like that whole speech that he gives at the end i do love that when he's like 
My name is Alexander Morozova, but I have had a hundred names and I've committed a thousand crimes and I am not sorry. Yeah. And I'm like, it's so good. And I can see like Ben Barnes as the Darkling, like saying that and then going in to this. And then, then the last thing that he shouts is that like everything I, you know, all I did, I did for Ravka. And now I do this too for Ravka. And yeah, there he goes into his tree tree. prison (laughs) on his scream. Yeah. And it's, it's such a fascinating, like little mini arc too. When you go back to look at some of the first chapters where Zoe and Nikolai are interacting with him, he says at one point during that, like, I did not live a hundred lives, die and return to this earth to live as an ordinary man. I will find a way back to my power. And his power is yes. Like his physical manifestation of power, which he does find, but like the, the, his power is his infamy and he's getting that on his terms at the end so like that's an intr- like a, a nice full circle back to the beginning of the book i also like to again lead a lot of this in this book and i feel like each mm-hmm. book gets better and better where she kind of throws things in and then you're like oh wait no that's the end of the book so it says to him death is too good for you and he goes is it what would make my atonement complete an eternity of torture he like says that in the beginning yeah. like, oh wait that's like what you get so yeah, just really impressive stuff in terms of, you know, particularly making me appreciate the trilogy in ways I didn't before necessarily hammering things home and having it all feel so earned and not necessarily like fan servicey. And, and I take issue with that term sometimes, but like she got a chance here to take a second bite at the apple and really like hammer home what she was getting at in that trilogy, which she didn't quite get at for a lot of people for various reasons. And it's the strongest writer that she's been at at this stage with this book. And she just knocks it out of the park and makes it feel so earned. And I loved it. It was really good. It's just very satisfying. And Uh, then, you know, always a possibility. We get more darkling in the future. Yeah, so she left herself lots of open doors. Lots of open doors. So we, I don't know when we're sticking this segment in comparison to our crow segment uh, that we have with Jesse in terms of um, like how we want to discuss the very end because we did discuss with her in terms of like, okay, is this another crow's book? But Aubrey, what would your thoughts be on now that we have this? big final moment with the darkling what are your thoughts on more of him potentially in the future i mean if he comes out of this i I have a couple of thoughts one is that i'm not sure that removing the thorn from his heart wouldn't ultimately kill him and Mm -hmm. for real and it would be interesting because he does describe a little bit about how he felt when he was like dead before his resurrection and it's just like quiet and waiting and just waiting to come back. And I wonder what it would be like next, but there's even some things he says about like wondering what the next course, sort of what the next adventure is after that, you know, because he's been alive for so long. Yeah. So I think I would be satisfied if he just got to really die for good when that um, pulled out. But I think if he does, if they do replace him, I don't think he can come out at completely the same person after the level of torture that this obviously is that we get from the way that Nikolai feels that same pain 
um, when the thorn goes into his his heart. Yeah. And I just think that that has to, that sort of trauma has to impact a person a little bit. Yeah. Um, sure. You know, so if he got, I don't know if I would think it would be complete redemption, but like if he was a person who could then see the pain be after having felt so much pain, I feel like that would also feel more earned than just like coming back and dying for yeah. redemption, which is a lot of times how we, which is like how we do it in the star Wars universe. <laughs> um, but to instead, like he has, he is, has done something that is an actual penance. I would feel like that's a little bit a further step along. Like then I wouldn't feel so bad if people needed to forgive him. But I also like that. Jenya and Zoya and Alina aren't really doing it for him. They're doing it for them. Yeah. And it always makes me think about how, like, when we talk about forgiveness, sometimes that forgiveness is not for the person being forgiven, that sometimes it's for us letting go of that anger and pain that we're carrying towards that person and that we just need to do it to be able to move on. And that's kind of how they get it. So, you know, Honestly, the more I talk about the ending, like my initial read on it was like, oh my gosh, they're setting up a potential, like another book here. But the more I think about it, like this ending was so perfect. I trust her implicitly. She nailed this book, like hit it out of the park. Like it's great. But like everything feels so, so well wrapped up in like enough ambiguity so that we can think about things going forward, but enough conclusions that everyone's arc. I don't know. I don't know if I want another one. We'll see. Maybe leave it to fan fiction. Yeah, well, she's kind of said that, right? Like, maybe I'll leave this just for the fans to contemplate. So, I don't know. Yeah. It was really good, though. It was really good. I was just really... I mean, I was happy with all of it. Um, But I was happy to get... To finally get a Darkland POV and to feel like, okay, well, this is sort of the stuff you get from, like, Demon in the Woods, the short story, and then... Mm-hmm. you know, that's hinted at in the trilogy, but it's just so much better done here. So much better done and a lot of filling in of the character. And again, enough there for everyone, unless you were like a true Dark Lena shipper, which like you've kind of admitted that you, I mean, obviously everyone's drawn to the Darkling. The Darkling is hot. Ben Barnes as the Darkling is going to kill us all. It's fine, but I think the only people who are like really truly upset with us are like true Dark Lena shippers, like hardcore ones, and people who like were so gung ho, like a hundred percent he's going to get a redemption. And I don't think that that's an accurate reflection of the initial trilogy. And is certainly Lee was, I think, trying to make a really big point here in response to those types of people too. I mean, yes, she wants to flush out her characters as best she can, but I also think she was kind of like, no, like don't ship him with her. Like I, who, did you send me a Tumblr post or someone did that was like, we really said no rights to dark Lena shippers. And I appreciate that. <laughs> like she really, I mean, there was like no question during that scene really. Yeah. So she really just kind of put those kind of fringe people in the fandom in their place and gave people like us who I think are readers with differing opinions on how things work for us gave us all something that we could all come together on so I liked yeah and if you really love the dark lane like he's still he does some good things in this book even if there there are selfish motivations there so I don't feel like she 
there are ways that she could have done this that would have just been like, and the darkling is a hundred percent pure evil mm-hmm. and you're all idiots for shipping him. I don't right. think she does that, but she makes it clear. Like that's not the story. Yeah. This is not, that's not who the darkling and Alina are. And that's not what is going to happen. And I really appreciated it. It could have gone real bad either, yeah. either direction. Honestly, yeah. it could have gone really bad. And yeah. this is good. I was really worried about it and so happy with the way that it actually came yeah. together. Yeah, it was really good. Any other last minute thoughts and Aubrey on on the book as a whole or anything since you won't be with us for the rest of our, our episode? Could not stop reading. I did not sleep until I had finished this book. So um, I feel like that says it all because that has not happened mm-hmm. to me in a very long time. And that last line of this book just like is such a killer. I mean, Zoya getting to be the queen of Ravka and getting to be the queen on her own, not as Nikolai's wife. Mm -hmm. And that Nikolai is going to be like her personal privateer and also her prince consort. And just like, it's just so perfect. And it makes me so happy. You know, one of the things sometimes I think a lot of people who I know are upset about with the trilogy is that Alina, it feels like gets punished for being powerful by giving up her power. But here Zoya is the most powerful person in the world and she becomes a dragon and she is rewarded for that. And so I feel like Lee is trying to tell us like she was not punishing Alina for having power. Alina gives it, has to give it up because of her abuse of power, but power used the right way and there is good. And yeah. women should have it. And I was so pleased with that. I just feel really emotional about all of these characters who I love so much. Like it yeah. just ended that's, up. Yeah. So well, we were so well fed. Yeah. Yes. We were so well fed. And that's such a great way to put it, Aubrey, that comparison between Zoya and Alina and then the the rewarding moments between Alina and Zoya and Jenny at the end. It's really, again, a lovely full circle moment. And everyone is so content in that moment. And I love it. Yeah. It was great. Thanks again for coming on with us. And stay tuned for the rest of our episode. Pretty much all we wanted to discuss here today. I say pretty much all as though this was not already like a two-hour episode, but whatever, it's fine. Three Uh, hours later. Here we are at the end of part one. But before we go, we actually got this really great email from friend of the pod, Leah, which serves as a great wrap-up. It was very prescient of her. Um, Coming at us from the future in Australia. (laughs) Thanks, apparently. But it kind of serves as a good wrap-up of a lot of the things we talked about here on part one. So Tage is going to read it now, and then we'll talk about it. All right. So Leah says, I absolutely loved Rule of Wolves, especially all the character work that's been done with Zoya. Last week when I was rereading Shadow and Bone for Book Club after finishing Wolves, I realized that there were a lot of similarities between Alina and Zoya. They're both powerful summoners who were drawn to the Darkling and loved him. The best example of this is with their amplifiers. Juris told Zoya that in order to fully understand the power of the amplifier, there needs to be a bond with the animal. Alina showed power through mercy, and her choice not to kill the stag was ultimately a stronger bond than when the Darkling killed it, which is why she broke free of his control. With Zoya, she killed the lion by protecting cubs. They both made connections with the animals. Then when Zoya killed Juris, she did it because he asked her to, and she was giving something up. 
The first time I read King of Scars, I was annoyed at the surprise, the darkling of it all, but I've come to realize that in order to move forward, Zoya and Nikolai and Jenya need to deal with the trauma that he caused them. Zoya felt guilty for loving him, so did Alina, and he cultivated that feeling by creating a hierarchy within the Grisha, Corporalki, then Etherealki, then Materialki. By putting Alina on a pedestal, he encouraged the animosity between the Grisha that allowed him to have control over them. Zoya reflects in Rule of Wolves that she was wrong to ostracize Jenya, but the Darkling encouraged that behavior. Where the Darkling divided the Grisha, Alina united them by creating the Triumvirate. Zoya thought she was better than David and Jenya, but at David's funeral realized how much she loved them and that she was wrong. Jenya even tells Zoya that the reason the Darkling lost is because he was by himself. Most of all, the thing I love most about this book is... At the end, it's Jenya, Alina, and Zoya sitting as friends after Zoya's coronation. Women are running Rothkin now, and it's going to be great. And we could not agree more. I love so much of that, particularly this comparison between Alina and Zoya with respect to the amplifiers. The comparison to them is really so great, and it really kind of builds off of what Aubrey talked about in our section on the Darkling about how Alina lost her power, but then Zoya is the most powerful at the end. And they are kind of bookends to this whole Grishaverse story in a lot of ways. And I just, I love the parallels between them and then how we get to see Alina move through her relationship with the Darkling in the trilogy. But then we get to see the results of that here in this book while we see Zoya and Jenya and Nikolai continue to work through what they've all dealt with because of the Darkling. And it really is just so satisfying. Yeah. And I really love what Leah brings up here with um, the way that the the Darkling's platform was always about like unity and bringing the Grisha together, but really he was facilitating this divisiveness between all of them and encouraging a level of separation uh, mm-hmm. to to kind of keep them from actually joining up together against him. And I love that too, in terms of how Zoya reacted to all of that. You know, a lot of people don't like when characters are, I guess, mean for seemingly no reason to other characters, right? And even in this book, as Leah said, she she goes through a lot of atonement for how she used to feel about David and Jenya. But looking at it as a reflection of everything the Darkling instilled in her makes so much sense because he's just awful on every count to everyone. And he totally turned them all into very power hungry and socially separated people. Many versions of himself. Exactly. And so, yeah, that's why, I mean, the ending is so satisfying in so many ways, but to see the three of them there, they've all come out better despite everything that asshole put them through all of it <laughs> and and yes women running ravka and women running pretty much everywhere else in this world yeah fierda shuhan yeah Q beyonce who run the world girls so yeah it's all just really great i just i love that email it really just tied everything up so well and kind of hit home what made this also satisfying particularly when it came back to the original trilogy which is kind of what the focus of this episode ended up being, but on that note, we're just going to wrap up here. And next episode, you will get the rest of our thoughts on this book. And it's more so, I guess, the crow-focused episode, plus all of our superlatives. I don't think we're going to do our full sign-off here because you're going to be back with us tomorrow. See you tomorrow. <laughs> Bye. Bye.